one of the happiest experiences I think that anybody could ever have is to see someone who was born deaf here for the first time. Um, it's possible to see this today through the uh, technology of uh, cochlear implants. You ever seen a cochlear implant? A cochlear implant is an electronic device that provides direct stimulation to your auditory nerve. It, it bypasses the other receptors that some who are deaf have that are, that are broken. Um, worldwide, there are 30,000 people who have uh, cochlear implants. 14,000 of them are in the United States. Half of them are children. Um, I want to show you a video of a young woman hearing her voice for the first time. They're fine-tuning the cochlear implant that she has had, and uh, she can hear herself. Notice how she reacts. Uh, we usually don't start... Um, our service, our, our time in God's Word this way, but I want you to see something uh, that will, I think, show up in the text in a few minutes. So watch this here. <laughs> it's like so close. <laughs> So now technically your device is on. Can you tell? Oh, that's exciting! Here, you can put it down for a second. Just to use the sound. <laughs> what does it sound like? Oh, you're messed up, guys. <laughs> <laughs> Can you hear me? Can you hear your voice? Does your voice sound pretty loud? Um, no, not really. Well, that's good. <laughs> My laughter sounds loud. Yeah, you'll get used to all of that over time. <laughs> Do you want to hear your husband say something? <laughs> if you want to see more of these, grab a box of tissues. There's things that get in your eyes when you watch these, and uh, you can search, look for cochlear implants on a YouTube. Almost everyone who hears themselves for the first time cries. It's a somewhat shocking experience for them. Uh, you should, uh, a shockingly glad experience. Little children are, are wonderful to see with this. Like, what is that? They, they're stunned and they smile. Uh-huh. Uh, imagine this whole new world that is open for uh, these people and these children, these men and women. They'll hear their own voice the sound of their own breathing. You don't know how loud it is just because you're used to it. How loud your own breathing is in, in your voice. Uh, what it is uh, like to suddenly hear your mom or your dad or your child say, I love you. It's a sweet sound. The sound of uh, birds, the wind, music. There is an area of life that has been closed to these people that is now completely open to them. It's a shocking, it's a beautiful, it's a joy-producing experience. Something similar happens when you believe the gospel. 
Um, you begin to live what James calls the beautiful life. Your life is different. It's, it's starting to be transformed. It becomes increasingly beautiful. Now, I know that that term is not necessarily masculine. None of the, 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 none of the songs that, that you listen to when you lift weights have beautiful in the title. I know that. Um, but I, I'm trying to describe here a life that is rich and full and, and that, that helps other people, that brings light to others, not darkness, uh, joy, not, not sorrow, comfort, not stress. Do you know people like that, that people that, that being with them is like sitting in your backyard under your blooming dogwood tree as the spring sun filters through the leaves and through the, the flowers? There are people that, that being with them is, is like that. They live beautiful lives. Now, if you're not a follower of Christ, that may not be what you think about when you think about Christianity. It's certainly not how we're often portrayed. Uh, maybe you, you don't know uh, a lot of people like that. But there are... Uh, what, what, you, what I want to show you today, what I want you to see is that this is true, that that Christianity is meant to produce a beautiful life. And I want to show that to you as we walk through Leviticus chapter 7, which is where I'd like you to take your Bibles and turn to me, if you would, please. Turn to me to Leviticus chapter 7. We were uh, in Sunday school this morning. Uh, We were watching a video, and and Paul Tripp was going through Genesis 3, and he said, now when you hear Genesis 3, it's a familiar passage, and you're inclined to tune out when you hear a reference that is very familiar. This is why we're going through Leviticus. Nobody knows what in the world is going on. So Leviticus chapter 7. Now, uh, we're moving systematically through this book. This is the way that we often work. Uh, We're in this section of Old Testament law. Here are the regulations for how the Israelites, those people that God rescued from slavery in Egypt, are to worship Him. It's a strange book. It's unusual to us. It's foreign. But we recognize these are specific regulations for a specific time, a specific uh, people. And what makes this situation so unique is that God is physically with the people. He has moved into the nation. Repeatedly, the Old Testament says God lives with the people. He was there physically with them. Now, we use the word omnipresent to describe God. That's a $5 theological word. It means that that God is everywhere. He's all present. Or, maybe even a better way to think about that is that Everything is always in the presence of God. Shakespeare said, all the world is a stage, right? And, and we are all on stage and God is the audience. He sees and knows everything that happens everywhere all the time. So God is present everywhere, but in the Old Testament here, in a special sense, God took up residence with the people. Uh, John 1 tells us that the, uh, that the Lord Jesus did the same thing, doesn't it? Jesus came and he tabernacled, he took up special residence with the people. His deity, though, Jesus' deity, was veiled in flesh, as Charles Wesley said. His heavenly glory was somewhat uh, hidden. Here, his glory, the glory of God, is, is uh, unveiled, or at least it's veiled only by the curtains of the temple, the tabernacle. And Leviticus describes the special practices that people had to assume in order to survive, in order to enjoy God's presence, God's being with them. 
Now, thus far, for nearly three months, we've been talking about the sacrificial system. The law is, is like a mirror, and it, what it shows us about ourselves is not pretty. We are unholy people who live in the presence of a holy God. We're spiritually polluted before God. And, and these sacrifices that the people were to offer were daily reminders of the consequences of being an unholy person in the world that God has, has made. Blood and death were everywhere, but God in, in His kindness allowed substitutions. There, someone, something else could die in your, in your place. This week, um, Jessica Harrison was on jury duty. Went to jury duty. And while she was there, there was a woman who went up to the counter to register and she presented her summons. And the clerk looked at her and said, uh, This isn't you, she said. Uh, oh, I know. Uh, my husband sent me here in his place. You can't do that in the jury system. There's no substitutions. Uh, Jess said she could hear the woman's husband protesting on the phone from across the room. No substitution. Here, though, there, substitutions can be made. God is, is gracious. Unholy people who have merited God's righteous wrath, but a substitute can, can serve, can, can represent you. Now, for six chapters or so, the Lord has given Moses instructions for how people, individual worshipers, were to bring their offerings. And then in chapters 6 and 7, what we do is uh, he changes and he talks about how the priests received them, how they approved, received, and processed the offerings that they took. We've been through the five offerings already once, burn offerings, grain offerings, sin or purification offerings, guilt or reparation offerings, and fellowship offerings. We've been through all five of them. Now, actually, we've been through all five, almost all of them, a second time. And this morning, we're going to talk about what a priest does with fellowship offerings. Let's read that, shall we, from Leviticus chapter 7, verse 11. Here's what a priest is supposed to do with them. These are the regulations for the fellowship offering. Your translation might say peace. A person may present to the Lord. If he offers it as an expression of thankfulness, then along with this thank offering, he is to offer cakes of bread made without yeast and mixed with oil, wafers made without yeast and spread with oil, and cakes of fine flour, well kneaded and mixed with oil. Uh, three different types of bread. Along with his fellowship offering of thanksgiving, he is to present an offering with cakes of bread made with yeast. He is to bring one of each kind as an offering, a contribution to the Lord. It belongs to the priest who sprinkles the blood of the fellowship offerings. The meat of his fellowship offering and thanksgiving must be eaten on the day it is offered. He must leave none of it till morning. If, however, his offering is the result of a vow or is a free will offering, the sacrifice shall be eaten on the day he offers it, but anything left over may be eaten on the next day. Any meat of the sacrifice left over till the third day must be burned up. If any meat of the fellowship offering is eaten on the third day, it will not be accepted. It will not be credited to the one who offered it, for it is impure. The person who eats any of it will be held responsible. You can have leftovers the next day, but not the third day. Verse 19. Meat that touches anything ceremonially unclean must not be eaten. It must be burned up. As for other meat, any ceremonially clean, anyone ceremonially clean may eat it. But if anyone who is unclean eats any meat of the fellowship offering belonging to the Lord, that person must be cut off 
from his people. If anyone touches something unclean, whether human uncleanness or an unclean animal or any unclean, it detestable thing, and then eats any of the meat of the fellowship offering belonging to the Lord, that person must be cut off from his people. Now, this is how a priest is supposed to oversee a fellowship offering, how he's supposed to take care of it and make sure it's offered properly. I've suggested to you that the passages like this are useful for us in thinking about the way spiritual leaders serve those who are under your care. Think with me about that for a minute. Who, who, who does that qualify? Who, who is under your care? Um, the congregation, if you're an elder, that's true of you, the congregation. Um, your growth group, uh, your Sunday school class, uh, the children in Awana that you listen to their verses and explain to them what, what they mean, that person you're mentoring, your family, your, your own family, they're under your care, are they not? Uh, this offering is, is the last one, fellowship offerings. Fellowship offerings are mentioned last year because they're not required. This is a voluntary type of offering. They mark special occasions. They're celebratory. They celebrate a relationship with God or celebrate peace with God, fellowship with God. You know, verse 12 tells us, or actually verses 12 and 16 together tell us there's three different occasions at least where you might offer a fellowship offering. You might do it as an expression of thanksgiving. There are thank offerings. Verse 12 talks about that. If he offers it as an expression of thankfulness. Now maybe because of the rest of the way that the, New Testament use, uh, the Old Testament uses the word thanks, this might be, in fact, a lavish expression over joy that God forgives sin. I am so thankful that God forgives sin that I'm going to present this offering. Now, verse 16 mentions two other types of peace offerings, fellowship offerings. It might be first a votive offering. Now, when you think votive, maybe you think little candle that you burn in your house. That, um, votive here in the sense of it's an offering that you offer when you fulfill a vow. It has to do with a vow. Um, I guess when the noun vow becomes an adjective, it becomes votive. I didn't write the language. So, a votive offering. And then, right there next, it mentions free will offerings. So, there's votive offerings and free will offerings. Um, you just bring these because you're just grateful to God. He, he's so kind to you that in your joy, you bring this fellowship offering. Um, listen, you don't have it written down there. I wish you did, but write this reference down. Psalm 54, 6. Listen to this psalm. Uh, we're going to look at more psalms in a, in a minute, but just listen to this one. I will sacrifice the psalmist as a free will offering to you. I will praise your name for I will praise your name, Lord, for it is good. This is his his intention. I'm going to offer an offering to you, and here's the reason why. You have delivered me from all my troubles, and my eyes have looked in triumph on my foes. God, I'm just so thankful to you for your kindness and your goodness, and I am presenting this sacrifice to you of my own free will. Now, this passage, I think, touches on the unleashed beauty of the life of someone who knows the God of the Bible. Someone who's in a relationship with him. 
George Weigel is a Roman Catholic writer and thinker, and he said that one of the things that happened in the 19th century was, in the 19th century, human beings began to believe that the God of the Bible is the enemy, not the friend of human freedom and the natural sciences and human maturity. The God of the Bible is our enemy. He restricts us. He holds us back. He keeps us back scientifically. He keeps us back from maturing. He keeps us back from freedom. The God of the Bible is our enemy. And, and that is the mindset that most people have today. The God of the Bible, he, he holds us back. He hinders us. He's cruel to us. When in reality, the God of the Bible unleashes beauty. It un- he unleashes true freedom. True progress. God unleashes beauty. And, and here I want to suggest to you three things that it looks like. First of all, uh, three characteristics. There is spontaneous gratitude. Spontaneous gratitude. There are a lot of rules and regulations in the book of Leviticus, and we're going to come to them, meticulous descriptions of ritual. But following rules and rituals is not all there is to Christianity, to being rightly related to God. The provisions of these sacrifices, these types of sacrifice, communicate God's expectations that the people would have reason to, that they would delight in expressing thanks, that there would just be this spontaneous joy over knowing God, that this would be a part of life among God's covenant people. I, I mentioned the Psalms. The Psalms gave the Israelites the vocabulary when they wanted to sing a beautiful song about God and how good He is the Psalms give them the words to sing. We, we sang a, a version of Psalm 100, verses 4 and 5. Look what it says. Enter his gates with thanksgiving. Bring your thank offering because he's, he's good. And enter his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Praise his name. For the Lord is good and his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues throughout all generations. There's, the, the psalmist was just thinking one day about God's kindness and his goodness. And he wrote this. And perhaps he presented a sacrifice first time it was sung. I have a new psalm, priest. Here, I'm going to offer this animal and I'm going to sing. Um, look at here what might be a strange passage. Psalm 84. Maybe it's on the other side of your sheet. I'm not sure. Psalm 84. Listen to what it says. How lovely is your dwelling place, Lord Almighty. My soul yearns. It even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Even the sparrow has found a home and a swallow a nest for herself where she may have her young, a place near your altar. You see what's happening here is this man is entering the courtyard, the psalmist, and, and he, maybe the temple has been built. They're not using the tent, the tabernacle. The temple's been built and he looks up maybe on top of one of the pillars and there's a sparrow's nest. And he sees it and he says, oh, oh, if I were a sparrow, I could have a home in God's temple too. It would be, be wonderful because my soul yearns for this. My flesh cries out for this. Blessed are those who dwell in your house. They're ever praising you. Does this seem strange to you? Maybe it does. Uh, we've been talking for weeks about bloody sacrifices. And, and the temple, the tabernacle, is a place of slaughter and noise and burning meat. But apparently this worshiper has, has seen beyond that. He, he recognizes that the, the, the tabernacle is a place of forgiveness and peace with God and protection and deliverance. And this spontaneous gratitude just marks his life. 
I wonder how much it marks your life. Would you describe yourself as, as spontaneously grateful? Are, are there moments in your life beyond Sunday, outside of your normal worship, where, where it strikes you, God is, is he's good. He's good. Do you ever find yourself a singing sometimes? I, I love to hear uh, my kids singing. Sometimes they sing songs we sing at church. Sometimes they make them up as they go along. Theology's not very good in those songs, but we try. Uh, we have been keeping track for the last three years. We've been keeping track in our church. We have sung about 200 songs over the last three years. And we sing, um, some of them we sing very often. Uh, it's intentional. I want you to have a, an easily accessible mental playlist in your mind and your heart so that over the next month you, you can sing, Christ, He is risen, He is risen indeed. Oh, sing hallelujah. You can sing that when, when you're walking out to your mailbox to get your mail or when you're, you're doing dishes or while you're on your way to dinner in the cafeteria. I wonder if this spontaneous gratitude is, is part of your friendships. Do you express this to people? Uh, maybe when you talk about your faith with your accountability partner. Actually, I think maybe when you talk to your faith with your accountability partner, you're, you're more inclined, aren't you, to, to say, oh man, I messed up again. Is that how your, your accountability relationships look like? They're just loaded down with guilt. Maybe you can say to them, oh, I failed, but God is faithful today, and I'm just so grateful. This passage, you know, it presses us a little bit here in this expectation that, there, that God's people would offer these offerings. It, it presses us a little bit because it confronts us in an area where we all feel inadequate. Are you, are you happy with the level of gratitude that characterizes your life? This is what Thanksgiving is, right? That's what Thanksgiving is for. We're Christian people. Thanksgiving is so that we can feel guilty about how grateful, ungrateful we are the rest of the year. So we do during Thanksgiving week. Uh, but, but, you know, a lack of gratitude is actually a symptom of a, of a deeper problem. It, it's only the symptom. We have to get to the, the root of the problem. Uh, let, let me explain here. We have a faucet in our house, in our kitchen sink, that's uh, changeable. On the top of it, it's, it's got uh, uh, buttons that you can push. They're coated with this rubber covering. And one button you push, and, and it, the, the faucet uh, brings a, a nice shower setting. It looks like, uh, and the ring around the edge it comes down in, in a shower. I like the setting of our faucet. I find it to be soothing. Um, the other setting is, is more like a jet. It's it, you know, the most common, typical kitchen faucet. It comes out of the center in that, that spray um, I like the shower setting. Kathy, if she at all cares, um, uses the, the jet setting more often than I do. So that button gets pushed as we switch back and forth in the kitchen. Who's, who's using the sink? Now, this week we noticed a problem that we were having. Um, the, the switch is wearing, it out, wearing out. We use it often too much. Uh, instead of a consistent soothing shower or a powerful jet... Uh, we have a, a wimpy flow in the middle and drops around the outside. <laughs> Wholly unsatisfying. Now, the problem is not with the holes in the faucet. That's not the problem. The problem is with the switch. Um, the problem is with the button, the switch that changes the direction of, of the water. 
This sort of, of fellowship offering, especially as we read about it in the Psalms, speaks to the basic orientation of those who worship. The reason gratitude just drips out of your heart instead of flowing out of your heart is because of the orientation of your heart. It's because of the switch inside your heart. That's why there's just drips of gratitude and not a flowing stream. I want to show that to you by taking you to Psalm 50 in, in just a minute. But before we do that, I want to share with you the second characteristic of a beautiful life. This is the second characteristic of a beautiful life. Uncompromising purity. Uncompromising purity. Now, by uncompromising, I don't mean harsh and cold or heartless. That's sometimes what we use. We think of when we think of the word uncompromising. I mean consistent. Consistent purity. And by purity, I'm again not talking about being puritanical or judgmental or critical. I mean good. Someone who is consistently good. They do what is right. But it's more than just good. It's pure. Now, the text emphasizes that. Look at Leviticus chapter 7, verse 20. Some of you already turned to Psalm 50, didn't you? Sorry. Go back to Leviticus 7, verse 20, and you see this, this concern. If anyone who is unclean eats any meat of the fellowship offering belonging to the Lord, that person must be cut off from his people. If anyone touches something unclean, whether human uncleanness or an unclean animal or any unclean detestable thing, and then eats any of the meat of the fellowship offering belonging to the Lord, that person must be cut off from his people. Now the issue here is not hygiene. He's not worried about whether your meat has dirt on it. He's worried about ritual purity. That's his concern. We're going to talk about this more in weeks that are to come. But there are requirements about who is eligible to worship. And the Bible establishes in the book of Leviticus that there are some who cannot worship because they are ritually unclean, ritually impure. It might be, you might be impure because of accident or um, it might be intentional. It might be a major or a minor uncleanness, but you could not worship in the temple with ritual impurity. Now, again, why is this? God here is trying to teach his people that he is to be regarded as holy. He is separate. He is distinct. And if you eat this meat ritually impure, that is if you're unclean, you are to be cut off from your people. That's how significant and how special God is. Cut off. It's an unusual phrase. There are 19 offenses listed in the Old Testament for which a person was to be cut off from the people. Uh, most of them have to do with sexual immorality or idolatry. And to be cut off, what being cut off means is being disciplined by the divine intervention of God himself. Most often it meant death. God will kill you if this is something that you do. Um, this is serious. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Before someone takes the Lord's Supper, let a man examine himself. Let a person examine themselves before they take the Lord's Supper. Don't take the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. Be, why? This is the reason that many among you are, sleep, uh, are asleep, are dead, or are sick, because you have taken the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. 
recognizing how seriously the Bible demands this distinction between holy God and unholy people is part of this reorientation process. This is a sign that the, heart, the switch of your heart has been changed. You recognize there is holy God and unholy people. This is part of uncompromising purity, and it leads to spontaneous gratitude. Now, let me show you that from Psalm 50. So let's go back, if you haven't already gotten there, let's go back to Psalm 50. This is a psalm that we have read before, and I want to look at it with you again, because it ties this lifestyle with thank offerings. Both of them are together in this passage. So it's worth looking at here, and I'm going to read it with a few comments thrown in here and there. Psalm 50. Look what it says. The Mighty One, God, the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to the place where it sets. From Zion, perfect in beauty, God shines forth. God comes and will not be silent. A fire devours before Him and around Him a tempest rages. He summons the heavens above and the people that He may judge and the earth, that He may judge His people. Now, this is a courtroom scene. The psalmist wants you to picture a courtroom scene. Now, who's the judge? God is the judge. And how does he enter the courtroom? Well, in our justice system, you know, you know what happens. You've seen enough um, television shows about uh, courts. So you know how this works, right? When, when the court begins, the bailiff announces, All rise, all rise, the Honorable Ethel J. Snodgrass now presiding. And, and Ethel, Judge Snodgrass, she comes in. She's wearing her black robe. And she comes, she sits down first. She bangs the gavel. And after she does, everybody else can sit down in the court. How does God enter the courtroom? A fire devours before him. And around him, a tempest rages. There's fire coming. Wouldn't it? You'd be, if you were a, defend, a defendant, right? And, and this is how the judge comes in with fire and thunder and lightning around. You would be a little, you, Judge Snodgrass would not, uh, you'd be afraid, wouldn't you? And this is God coming into the courtroom looking. Now, the people had seen this before. On top of Mount Sinai, there was fire and tempest around him. This is how God comes. Now, who, who are the witnesses? Or who, who's going to observe this trial? The heavens and the earth. He summons the heavens above and the earth that he may judge his people. Think about what your lawn would say if your lawn testified against you. I wonder, wonder what it would say. Actually, maybe your neighbor's lawn if you let your dog over there too much. Right? The heavens and the earth are going to testify. Here, here, verse 5. Gather to me my consecrated ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. And the heavens proclaim his righteousness, for God himself is judge. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, and I will testify against you. I am God, your God. I do not rebuke you for your sacrifices or your burnt offerings, which are ever before me. That's, that's good news. That's good. I have no need of a bull from your stall or of goats from your pens. For every animal of the forest is mine and the cattle in a thousand hills. Apparently he's speaking to the people and they haven't completely been oriented to him because they're, they're tempted to think that they're bringing food and God needs the food. God doesn't need the food. Why? Verse 11. I know every bird in the mountains and the creatures of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. 
for the world is mine and all that is in it. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Get it out of your mind, he's saying to the people. Get it out of your mind. I do not need you, God says. Even if I were hungry, I would not tell you. I once heard a a preacher. His name is Richard Allen Farmer. He's from Texas. He's an African-American. And he said, uh, uh, he he was quoting one of his uh, famous favorite uh, preachers, Richard Allen Farmer was, and he, he said, now, God is saying here that if I had a tooth and if my tooth had a cavity, I wouldn't even use you to fill it. We don't, we don't owe God, we, uh, we, don't, we don't pay God, we don't try to flatter God, we don't try to manipulate God. We, he does not need anything from us. And if he did need anything, he wouldn't come to us. So, so what, what do we do here? If we're, if we're bringing these offerings, if we're bringing this food, it's not to feed God, it's not to, to make God our debtor. What do we do here? Verse 14, sacrifice thank offerings, fellowship offerings to God. Fulfill your vows to the Most High. Bring your your votive offerings. And call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you will honor me. The type of heart that the switch has been turned, that is oriented to God, recognizes that he is not to be flattered. He is not uh, to be manipulated. In fact, the only stance we have before God is calling upon him in the day of trouble. That's what we do over and over and over and over again. You will never be a spontaneously grateful person unless you come to terms with this fact. This is who God is. I am the dependent one always. There are some who aren't oriented, though. That's how the psalm continues. Verse 16. But to the wicked, God says, What right have you to recite my laws or take my covenant on your lips? You hate my instruction and cast my words behind you. You know people who hate the Bible, who don't care what God says? When you see a thief, you join with him. Oh, there's looting going on and there's apparently no police. Let's go get our television of our own. You throw in your lot with adulterers. There's been recent news I've heard about an online website that will uh, enable you and help you for a small fee to cover up your adulterous affairs. They'll make excuses for you. They'll answer phones at inconvenient times. It's a website. It's a business that has thrown its lot in with adulterers. You use your mouth for evil. You harness your tongue to deceit. You speak continually against your brother and slander your own mother's son. Can you notice here how this works? They are unoriented to God, not recognizing that we are dependent upon Him for the day of trouble. And how does this show up? It shows up in how they treat their relatives. It shows up in what you say about those who are part of your family. I hope this morning none of your conversations started when you were talking to somebody before service. Oh, it was a busy week. And my sister, you wouldn't believe, my sister... It shows up in, in how, what you say about your relatives. It shows up in, in how you associate, who you associate with, what you do. This vertical disorientation shows up in horizontal mess. Now just think about if you were to take all these and, and switch them, how, how beautiful this would be, how this beautiful life of uncompromising purity. When you see a thief, you try to stop him. 
when you see an adulterer, you, you don't try to benefit off of what they're doing. You, you warn him. You use your mouth for good and you harness your tongue to tell people the truth. You speak continually for your brother and praise your own mother's son. Wouldn't that be a beautiful thing? Uncompromising purity. Now look here, verse 21. These things you have done and I have kept silent. You thought I was altogether like you. I mentioned this before. Do you remember studying Greek mythology in school? What are the Greek gods like? What's Zeus like? The Greek gods are jealous, angry, petty, adulterous, um, uh, vain. God says, I am not like that. The gods you make may be like that, but I am not like you. I will rebuke you and accuse you to your face. This this is a sober, this verse. Consider this, you who forget God, or I will tear you to pieces with none to rescue. God is going to come and tear you to pieces. God loves everybody, right? And yet he says, I will come and I will tear you to pieces and there there will be no one who will come and rescue you. It's a horrifying verse. This is what God threatens to those who know His Word, who are familiar with His covenant, and who turn and say, I don't want to have anything to do with this God. Forget it. I don't want to obey Him. I'm going to throw my lot in with people who, who ignore Him. I don't, I, don't, I don't want Him at all. Do you know people like this? Offerings brought to the temple. When you brought an offering to, into the tabernacle, it was what? Slaughtered and then cut into pieces. The offering itself would be cut, very carefully butchered in the temple. It was part of the worship uh, practices. And, and then it would be placed on the altar. Here, the, the person who knows God's word and ignores him is not carefully cut up. He is ripped apart by God himself. This ought to make you weep for people that you know like this. Then he returns to this last phrase in verse 23. He who sacrifices thank offerings. We're back to fellowship offerings. He who sacrifices thank offerings honors me. And he prepares the way so that I may show him the salvation of God. See, a reoriented life is open for God's ways. It's turned to him for direction, and for leadership. Whenever you talk to a friend or a relative about Jesus Christ and what He has done for us, beware of shortchanging the message. This is not just, the gospel we preach is not just about getting out of hell. Not, it's not just about escaping God's wrath. Following Jesus Christ is a life revolution. You begin to see things from God's perspective and seeing things from God's perspective, you begin to open your life to moments of spontaneous gratitude. Why are you not thankful enough? The switch still is stuck a little bit in in recognizing that God is the one we honor and it's to Him we turn and open our lives and long for the, the, the refreshing waters of His goodness. Uh, have you ever stuck something in the laundry that didn't need, shouldn't be there? I do this a lot. Things in my pocket. Huh. The other day I found a starburst in my clean pants. Yeah, it wasn't so good. 
Um, sometimes, though, I stick uh, paper stays in my pockets. What if you really need that piece of paper? Well, you know what the washing machine, the dryer does to paper, right? It was become a small, dense ball. And if you're very careful, if, if, if you're very careful and you really need what's on that piece of paper, um, from experience, you, you, can, you can very gently pry it apart, can't you? Just a little bit, and maybe you can just get the information off of that piece of paper that, that you need. God does this work here. This is part of God's gracious work. He begins to do this opening up of our hearts, this opening work in our hearts. Our hearts that are unswitched, that are disoriented away from Him. God begins to do this gracious opening work and and this leads to uncompromising purity and spontaneous gratitude. Now, there's one more characteristic of a beautiful life that I want to mention from Leviticus 7 this morning here. Lavish generosity. Lavish generosity. Now, maybe you have some questions about this passage, a number of them. One of the questions that maybe you have is, why did this worshiper have to bring all this grain here? Why these grain offerings at the beginning as part of his worship? And why are there so many restrictions about when the meat could and could not be eaten? Why, why is that? You have to eat the thank offering on that day, but a fellowship, a, a, a votive offering, you have two days to eat. Now, why, why these rules? Gordon Wenham has has good suggestions, I think, about the meat. He says, maybe this is part of the requirement that the meat has to be perfect. It has to be ritually pure. Don't serve day-old meat. Maybe. Maybe these restrictions are are to teach that God, God feeds us every day. Give us this day our daily bread. We don't need to hoard food if we're God's. Or, I think most telling, he gives us requirements because if the meat had to be consumed quickly, then it would have to be shared. Give it to others. Give some to the priests. Give some to your family. Give some to the poor. Share it gladly. Again, you see this connection between the horizontal and vertical. Those who recognize God's goodness, those who call on Him in the day of trouble and He delivers, share with one another. It is the overflow of an oriented heart, a heart that's oriented to God. This generosity... You would come, you'd bring this sheep, this lamb, whatever you would bring as a thank offering, and, and you would slaughter it and you would, you would verbalize, God has been good to me and here's how. He's been good to me in these ways. And you would specifically enunciate them. Maybe there would be a psalm that would specifically describe your situation and you'd sing it and your neighbors would see and the priests would see and they would look and they'd say, wow, God is so good. He's been so good to that man. And then that woman. And then the sheep comes and uh, it, part of it is offered on the altar. Part of it is cooked on the altar and returned. God, you give it to God. God gives it back to you to share with others. Lavish generosity. These are the qualities of of a beautiful life. They're attractive people. And you want to be around people like this. Where do these qualities come from? How do they grow in you? It's no accident in this list here that the fellowship offerings are last. They come last. When you would go to worship, you would begin by offering a burnt offering, general atonement was always accompanied by a grain offering, dedication. If it was necessary, there would be a sin offering or a guilt offering, but then finally fellowship offerings. They always come after atonement. The atonement shapes the gladness of those who worship. 
The substitution leads to the praise and the purity and the generosity. The same thing happens in the New Testament because God has loved us and has given us His Son as the perfect atoning sacrifice for sins, the one we turn to for forgiveness and life. We respond to Him with praise and we turn to others in love. That was all over the passage that Hannah read to us a little bit ago. We love one another because of God's love for us. John believed, and we believe it too, that the message of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus is is perspective-changing news. It's reorienting news. It's good news that has the power to change us dramatically. Usually it's only bad news that changes us that much, isn't it? Um, I was in high school when my grandfather died. I was a junior in high school. It was between actually my junior and senior year. I was working at a camp. And uh, my grandmother was so distraught that my grandfather had died, she couldn't even tell my parents. She, she called my parents and said, the hospital wants you to call them right away and hung up the phone. Uh, my par- uh, the camp that I was working at was very close to this hospital. My parents had no idea what was going on. They thought actually something had happened to me. They called the hospital. They found out my grandfather had died. And over the next several months, actually for the next several years of her life, we watched her go through this process. This bad, devastating news that her husband had died totally changed her life, changed everything about her life. There are many of you in this room who know what that experience is like, the power of bad news. Have you ever seen one of those uh, charts? If you take a psychology class, a beginning psychology class, you'll see it. There are scientists, psychologists who've studied um, and ranked the the devastation of bad news. They they rank all the bad things that could happen to you on a scale from 0 to 100. 100 is the worst possible thing that could happen to you. 0 is uh, a minor inconvenience. And losing a spouse is 99 out of 100. Moving to a new city and state, that's maybe 70. That's how stressful that is. Beginning a new job is maybe an 80. Breaking a fingernail is like one. Okay, so rank this. And, and actually, if, if, maybe if you go to a counselor, one of the things they might do is, is try to figure out in the last few years how many of these have you had, how, what's your stress number, how bad on a zero, scale from zero to 300 has it been for you. You add up all these numbers of horrible things that have happened. Bad news... We expect bad news to be shaping, to be transformative. But the gospel is good news that is transformative. In fact, it's more transformative than all of those numbers. If the, gospel, if, if the worst news is possibly 99 on that scale, the gospel is a 400. It, it weighs that much. It has that much potential and power to be active in your life. And what Leviticus 7 is calling us to in the midst of this broken world in which we live in, it's a call to give the gospel its proper weight. Paul does this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He says, Our light and momentary affliction is not worthy to be compared with the weight of glory that will be revealed. Can you imagine uh, Pastor Scott has in his office a sign that, that he, he got in Africa uh, last 
year when he was there. It was a sign that commemorated a, a vicious attack in this village. The sign had been broken apart, and he picked up a piece and brought it home. This vicious. We hear about these all the time. Uh, tribal warfare, terrible things happening in Africa. Imagine oh, there's uh, Muslims attacking Christians, Christians attacking Muslims. Uh, imagine for a minute here, you see in heaven someday this woman. And, and you ask her, her testimony. She's, she's from Nigeria. And you say to her, well, what, hap- what happened to you? Oh, she says, well, uh, one day they came to my village and they took all of the men out of the village, and I saw them all. They, they slaughtered all of the men. My husband, my two sons, my three brothers, my father, they slaughtered them all. What, what happened to you? Well, huh, they sexually assaulted all the women, destroyed, set our houses on fire, and left. It's a devastating story. And then she says to you, but, but look, look at Jesus Christ and who he is and what he's done. And in comparison to him, it's just feathers. What happened to me was light as feathers in comparison to the weight of the glory of seeing Jesus Christ. Now, those things, those, all those terrible things are not light things in this world to that woman. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is in comparison to the glory that will be revealed through Jesus Christ. And Leviticus 7 is a call to us to a beautiful life that gives the right weight to the fact that God has provided a substitute and that God's faithfulness and his goodness will ultimately be shown to outweigh every bit of darkness those who are his face. The Bible's news about Jesus Christ is transformative. It's the best news. It's news that will rock your world. So look at it again and listen to it and see again and again and again. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come into your presence today and we do so through Jesus Christ who is our ultimate, the best substitute. We honor him, the Lord Jesus, who for our sake on the cross offered himself up. Father, I'm I'm aware of, of men and women in this room who are experiencing weighty things in this life. They're walking through grief and loneliness and they're walking through despair and fear and confusion. Oh God, I pray that you would help us to weigh these things in comparison. Help us to recognize the light and momentariness of the darkness that we encounter in comparison to the weight of glory. That's that's what will drive us to be grateful and pure and generous people. Transform us. John believed that the gospel was sufficient to do so, and, and we do too. So we sing it, we read it, we say it again. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, and those he saved are saved to the uttermost. That's good news. Set us rejoicing with it, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.